It's good to see you all again today as we uh, open the, the Word of God. Just uh, a few announcements. Uh, first of all, um, we have uh, next weekend uh, a father-son retreat. Darren, are you in here? I don't think Darren's here. Maybe he's, he's off. Um, uh, but that's, you don't know. So that's next weekend. If you're interested in that, just talk to Darren. Uh, father-son retreat. And uh, I think David always looks forward to that time. And uh, maybe a SAR will come this time. Kind of talked about it. It's, it's a good, fun, enjoyable time. You want to come? Um, Parker. Austin. You want to come, Austin? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Um, secondly, I uh, just want to announce that just with uh, uh, elders, um, uh, Brian Mulder and Ryan Brown, uh, that process is coming to a conclusion. And uh, next month, uh, we're heading for uh, November 25th to have an installation service for them. Um, so you can be in prayer about that, kind of as a highlight of what we're seeking to do. Also, we have uh, small groups tonight. If you're new here, great way to be involved is in small groups. Just come tonight. We're going to talk about my, my message right now. So all you need to do is just listen to what's, what's going on now. Think about how to apply it. We'll press application in the small groups. And that's at the Mulder's house and the Brown's house and at our house tonight. Five o'clock? Is that what time you guys are? Yeah, we're all five o'clock. Kind of bring a little bit of monkeys to eat and... And just we seek to just take the Word of God and press it into our, our hearts and our, our souls. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles to open them to Romans chapter 12. As we continue our crawl through Romans 12, it took us uh, about, a, I think, a year and a half to get through Romans 1 through 11. And here it's taken us about four or five months to get through Romans 12. Uh, just because it's filled with application, it's really good for us. I just want to read... Read our text and then pray. Get in my message. Verse 15 is all we're looking at. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So let's pray. Father, we do pray now that the simple truths of this text might be true in our life. Oh God, that we would indeed be those who rejoice with those who rejoice. God, that we would be those who weep with those who weep really simple and straightforward, and we can understand that, yet we'll spend the next 40 minutes really thinking about it. I pray, God, that it would sink deep into our hearts, sink deep into our minds, and that this would be genuinely true of us. God, that we would have a, a genuine sharing of emotions with other people, that when they rejoice, our, our natural response is to rejoice, and when they weep, our natural response is to weep. And so, God, I pray that you would so stir those things in us. God, do your work among us. I know that I can just talk and talk in vain unless you show up. And so I would pray that you would show up and sink deep into our hearts this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago at, uh, um, at Rock Valley College, SR was, was attending there. And uh, he came home one day, was, was taking a class at... Uh, Rock Valley Music History class by Mark Beard, Mark Beard, Mike Beard, um, <clears throat> and uh, one of the things he was talking about was his favorite composer, Jean Sibelius. He's from Finland. Um, he was whatever in the, the early 20th century. He wrote seven symphonies in his lifetime. He was so famous in Finland that his image was on the, the currency of Finland until they adopted the euro in 2002. Uh, Sibelius today is even celebrated every year, December 8th, in honor of his birthday. It's called the Day of Finnish Music. But uh, did you remember any of that, SR? Probably not. N- none of that caught his attention when he was in class uh, that day. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but what did catch his attention, though, was the professor mentioning um, this, this thing that... Um, that Sibelius has something experienced is called synesthesia. Has any of you ever heard of synesthesia? Some of you have. Okay, good. Well, we had never heard of it, but it is a it is a neurological condition that causes the brain to process data from several senses at the same time. Essentially, it means that your senses are like like cross circuited, and those with synesthesia see what they hear, and they feel what they see, and they taste what they touch. Or various other crossings of senses. And sometimes more and sometimes it's less. And in the case of Sibelius, 
uh, he had something that was called colored hearing. That is, when he saw things, he heard them. For instance, this is in his home. This is a fireplace that he had. It's a pretty unique fireplace. And what color is the fireplace again? I can't. Um, it's green. I hope it turns green. Yeah. It's a green fireplace there. And uh, when Sibelius saw that fireplace, he heard the F major chord. Just F major. So that, that fireplace there just took him to, to F major. And Sr was intrigued by this, this concept. I, I don't know why, but he came home talking to Yvonne about it. And so Yvonne starts researching it and come to find out that of all of our children, I think Stephanie has the most traits of synesthesia of, of anybody. And um, she, when she hears music, what? In our family, right? When she hears music, she sees colors. I don't know how to describe it. She, and numbers all have colors to her as well. And so it all seems strange to me. And, and the colors sometimes are vivid and sometimes they're not so vivid. I tested her. Like uh, early in the week, I said 1 through 50. Gave her all the colors. And then I came back yesterday, last, last night, and I said, okay, give me all 50 of these numbers again. Give me a color. And she was, right, like over 60% of the time, 1 to 50, like all these colors, blue and yellow and orange and green, and something about your brain, Steffi, is cross-circuited in that way. And it was interesting, when we started talking about this, Steffi's like, oh, doesn't everyone see colors when they hear music? Now, now, to me, I don't understand it. I don't ever see any colors when I see music. If anything, when I hear music, it's just a black wall. Is what I, there's kind of not, not very much. But most of us have some degree of this, believe it or not. And so uh, have you ever watched a, a sporting event, like an NFL football game, and there's some gruesome injury on the, on the screen? Yeah, what happens? Like, it hurts, right? In fact, I thought about putting a picture of one of those gruesome in, injuries right here on the screen, but... Yvonne told me, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. would be like forever etched into the mind of our children. Like, oh, that's a sermon. When that was, oh, that was so hard. But you show that. And doesn't, do you ever quiver? Like when I was searching injuries, you know, like Joe Theismann or Zach Miller. Remember Zach Miller last year's gruesome injury. Um, my body was like in pain as I was, if I was feeling these things. So as, as a nurse, practitioner, whatever, do you ever get over that? Or is that still with you? You're hardened. <laughs> okay. To me, it's like really bad. Like I was looking through all these gruesome injuries, seeing them on the screen and just going, oh, and it hurt me. And if it hurts you, you've got some degree of synesthesia as well because you're feeling what your eyes are seeing. Now, one of the forms of synesthesia is called mirror touch synesthesia. It, it describes the, the condition when someone experiences sensation that they see in others. Like, so for instance, if, if they see someone touching their cheek, someone, someone touching their cheek, Steve Falzell, if you're touching your cheek, I would feel like, I'm, like someone's touching my cheek. Um, the sensation go to pain as well. And so here's this, this gal, Carolyn C.C. Hart, is uh, what she, she goes by, CC. She has this condition, and listen to how she describes her synesthesia. She says, if I see another person's injuries, I feel that in my own body. If I see someone get touched, I feel that on my skin. When someone tells me what they are feeling in their body, well, I feel it in my body. When I see another person's wounds, I get shocks of stinging electrical pains that shoot from my hips to my heels. It doesn't matter if this pain is real or depicted in a film the instant I see an injury, flashes of pain course down my legs. I also have really positive experiences when I watch ballet. I feel my muscles fire. When I see them executing pirouettes, I feel like I'm spinning. And it's not in an emotional sense of, gee, this is really lovely and so beautiful to watch. I can feel it in my body, and I can't control it. Now, I'm here this morning not to talk to you about synesthesia, but I'm here to talk to you today about her sister, sympathy. If you notice, those both start with the same letters. Synesthesia, sympathy. That just means with is what sin or sim means. Synesthesia is the blending, the withing together of senses. It senses together. Sympathy is passions. That's pathos, pathy. Sympathy is passions together or, or feelings together. And when we think of sympathy, we oftentimes think about, you know, being sorry for someone who's upset or grieving or hurt or something like that. 
But the word really just is, is general. It's, it's just um, embracing together one emotion with my emotion, feeling the same emotion together. That's what sympathy is about. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that's why I've entitled my message this morning, Show Sympathy, both positive and negative. Whether it's rejoicing positive, people are rejoicing, show sympathy, right? Be of one passion with them. Have the same feelings that they do. Or whether it's negative, if they are weeping, so likewise weep with them. And what's true of the body is synesthesia that, that uh, Carolyn Cece, can't, Carolyn Hart can't help but to experience. So likewise, we ought to engage in the emotional world, not, not helping but being able to, but just experience those things as well. So my command is two. My, my text has two commands. My outline has how many points? Has two points. Rejoice and weep. Now before we get into those two points, though, I want to talk about both of them a little bit together because rejoicing and weeping, there's some similarities here in, in the idea. And I think one of the most basic applications of these commands are, are, are weddings and funerals. I mean, I love weddings. Everyone is happy. The bride is happy. The groom is especially happy. The, the families are usually happy. There's often, there's always a big party. It's a time of joy, music, sometimes dancing, totally feasting. It's a time when bride and groom, think about it, they've invited all of their closest friends to come and rejoice with them. This is the exact picture. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We are rejoicing this day. Come and rejoice with us. And, and it's really easy to rejoice with those who rejoice during weddings. Especially when, when you're being fed and, and entertained. And funerals have some similarities. They, they are different, though. I mean, the, the difference comes back that they, they aren't happy times. Funerals are times of, of sorrow. Family and friends gather together to grieve their loss. And funerals can be difficult to attend. Some may not be so enjoyable. And yet there's something similar between a, a wedding and a funeral. A funeral maybe doesn't go out by invitation, but a funeral is a summons for one's closest friends to come and grieve with those who are, are grieving. And any time, of any time to weep with those who weep, it's at a funeral. It's a perfect picture there of our text. In fact, I was at a funeral yesterday for our good friends, the Leesky family. You can see Betsy Leesky is there. This is one of the last family pictures they took. Uh, Betsy passed away in late September, about three or four weeks ago. They're dear friends of ours, former neighbors, been close friends for years. Um, she died age 61 of esophageal cancer, uh, leaving her, her grandchildren and granddaughter behind. And uh, the funeral, I tell you, was as good as can be. She lived as a, I know Gary, you were there. I was super encouraged by the funeral. Just John as a rock, committed to Christ. Betsy was as well. They just, she served, she, she just her, gave her life till her dying day to serve other people. I mean, she really did. All what we've experienced and noticed from her, she just would gave herself to, to ministry. And uh, one of those who spoke of the wedding was a, another neighbor who we actually knew, so we're all, all neighbors in the same neighborhood years ago. And she came, and, and this neighbor's a nurse, and so she came and provided care for Betsy for maybe a year, kind of, as she declined from her cancer. And so she had an opportunity to give a, a personal reflection. And at just one point, I caught one sentence in which she said, she said this, We laughed together, and we cried together. That's the mark of genuine friendship, is it not? When you laugh together... And when you cry together? In other words, genuine friendship comes when you share your passions and emotions. Genuine friendship is when you rejoice with those who rejoice and when you weep with those who weep. William Barclay in his commentary on Romans tells a story about a, a southern lady from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, who was seeking to console another woman in the South whose aunt had died. And um, Miss Ruth was her name, and Miss Ruth said to this grieving woman, she said, you must miss her greatly. You are such great friends. And the grieving woman denied it. She said, I'm, I'm sorry that she died, but we weren't friends. 
And then, then Miss Ruth was apologetic. She said, well, I, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were friends. I mean, I've seen you laughing together lots of times. And the reply came, yes, ma'am, that's so. We laughed together and we talked together. But we're just acquaintances. You see, Miss Ruth, we never shed no tears together. Folks got to cry together before their friends. Folks got to cry together before their friends. And that's really the idea behind Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. It's what genuine friendship is about. It's what genuine friends will do. It's about close-knit relationships. When you have them, you will rejoice with those who rejoice and you will reap, weep with those who, who weep. Verse 12 is a, a relational verse. That that's, makes sense because chapter 12 is a relational passage. In fact, if you, if you look at Romans, the first 11 chapters aren't so relational, uh, horizontal, if you will. They're, they're more vertical in mind. It's, they, they speak about how it is that we are made right with God, made right through faith in Jesus Christ, because our, our sin has caused this division between us and God. In our natural state, we're not right with God. And that's all of us. That's religious people. That's non-religious people. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, 2 and verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that law. That's where we are, whether we're religious or not. Whether we, we've sinned by the law or, or we've sinned in ignorance, we still will be judged by God. And then in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul explains how God in His mercy solved this problem of separation between us and God. Though we'd fallen short of His glory, Christ came down to establish that link by us by sending Christ, God did, to die on the cross for our sin, to do what we could never do for ourselves, to be righteous for us. says Romans 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect law, lived the perfect life according to the law, absolutely. And He condemned sin in His flesh. So that by faith we might be made righteous. And we're made righteous the same way that Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Romans 4, verse 3. And as we believe in Christ, we are made righteous. Or we are saved. Or we're, we're, we're set apart. We're made holy. Romans twelve thirteen says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's everyone. That's everyone. That's all of us here today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, just simply crying out, confessing your sin to God and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Anyone who cries out to God will be saved from their sin. And that's good news. And the good news that Paul proclaims in 1 through 11 is how he can be made right with God. But it is not just Romans isn't just about this. It's also horizontally as well as chapter 12 takes the turn, hinging on the mercy of God. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, trusting God for mercy will change everything about your life, how you live, because God, Christ has bought you. You are his and you will give your life totally to him, he bought your life the cross. Your life is no longer your own, but it's his. And then chapter 12 begins to show how it fleshes itself out on this horizontal level, describing how it is that we live with one another. That's why we're going through it so slow, because we have 11 chapters of this vertical relationship with God, and now I've got one strong chapter about this horizontal relationship with all of us. Just, I just want to show that to you, verse 4. For us in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There's a, a horizontal way in which this vertical faith has expressed itself in, in serving one another and helping one another because we're part of a body, whether that's in teaching or leading or giving or caring. Just all appropriate on this, this level. And then he continues on with an emphasis on love. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Then it's real love among us. It's not love for God he's talking about. It's he's talking about love for others. <clears throat> Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Just there's this horizontal relating to one another in this loving way. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Just There it is. This is transition from this, this God who vertical relationship with him to making things right and loving one another. The emphasis is within the church, contributing to the needs of the saints, those in the church, seeing hospitality. Those are strangers, maybe outside the church, maybe Christians outside the church, or maybe he's talking about um, strangers, unsaved people. He's talking about that. Last week, we looked at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. We see a slight change in emphasis. He's going from, from the body, maybe even beyond that a little bit, even to those outside the church, those who are cursing you. Though, though some, this, this verse can really be applied to any time anybody hurts you, whether it's inside the church or outside the church. You're not to curse back at them. You're supposed to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And this week we look at verse 15, and I, and I think likewise it could be those outside the church, it could be those inside the church. It, it just speaks about those whom we genuinely love, we will rejoice with them. When they rejoice, we'll weep with them when they, we, they weep. Now some thoughts also before we start going into each, each of these things is um, there are times when we shouldn't rejoice with those who rejoice and shouldn't weep with those who weep. In the, in the first instance, I'm thinking of those in the world who are rejoicing in their sin, rejoicing in their worldly possessions, showing their covetousness of everything that they have, rejoicing in their pride and all their accomplishments, rejoicing in their worldly successes. We don't need to rejoice with them. In fact, we ought not to rejoice with them. We cannot rejoice in such unhelpful deeds of darkness. And regarding weeping, I. We ought not to weep with everyone who weeps. I'm thinking particularly those who weep in repentance for their sin. It's not a time really weep with them. It's time for joy. It's the sinners coming to Christ. Now, we don't laugh and start singing, right? We, we share with that, but the, the sorrow isn't in the, in the sin, right? Because they're, they're feeling their sorrow, but they're the sorrow to repentance, turning from that. And in that, we can rejoice. And so there's some discernment. When it comes to rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. But in general, if it's not sin, we should involve. We should be sympathetic with them. We should have like passions and emotions with them. We should rejoice with those who rejoice. We should weep with those who weep. So let's look here first at, at rejoicing. My point here is simply this, rejoice. And this rejoicing really should span the spectrum, whether it's big things to rejoice in or, or little things to rejoice in. Earlier I gave the example of a wedding but that's just one example of how it is that we ought to rejoice. I'm picturing other events, birthday parties, graduation parties, um, baby showers, anniversary celebrations. All these are occasions to rejoice and all these are explicit. I'm inviting you to come and rejoice with me at this time. They're like ready-made opportunities. So think about this. Every time you receive an invitation to attend a party or a, a shower or some sort of celebration, that is God giving you an opportunity to obey his word by going to the party and rejoicing with those who rejoice. How good is that? It's like, like God is saying, you go and you fulfill my word. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Enjoy the good things that God has, has given in mind. But, but this command to rejoice with those who rejoice goes not just even to weddings or, or parties even or, or gathered celebrate any anything. When a child learns to ride his bike for the first time, and parents, you, you do this, right? <laughs> yeah, Jimmy, good job. Or, or when a student receives an A in her class. Yes, you got an A. And when a high schooler makes the basketball team, when he makes the winning shot. Yeah, right. We're rejoicing right along with them. When your friend gets a promotion or raise at work, when your barren friends are finally pregnant, when your friends go on that anticipated journey to Disneyland, all of these things. It just, I'm just any sort of thing where things go well in other people, our emotions ought to be so attached that when they rejoice, we rejoice right along with them. And I say this, right? If things go well with you, it's right and it's proper to let other people know about that and invite them to come and rejoice with you to share in God's blessing in your life. In fact, in some ways, to hide your blessings might be a sin. Because in hiding them, you're not allowing people to rejoice with you 
just saying, I'm rejoicing all by myself. But see, Christianity is not this, this one, one, I'm just over here. No, it's all together. You need to share your rejoicings with other people. And it's, it's often easy to do. Okay, consider the, the parables told by Jesus in Luke 15. He tells three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And uh, in the first, it's the shepherd's got 100, feet, 100 sheep, but one of them is missing. And so he, he leaves the flock in search for this one. And Jesus says this, and when he has found this one, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He's calling others to come and rejoice with him at what he lost because he'd found it. And he's hap- so happy. He just wants you to be happy with him. The shepherd was in distress, concerned about the lamb, but now he's happy, invites others to share. The second story Jesus tells about the lost coin. He said this, Romans chapter 15, verse 8, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I have lost. I mean, do you notice that when Jesus told that parable, it was one big rhetorical question? What woman is there who will not, when she finds his lost coin, not rejoice and call others to come and rejoice with her? And it's only right to do so. I'm not sure if you've ever done that before. I just want to tell you a story this week. Um, This week we had a great opportunity to... um, uh, I, I, I normally take Monday off, but I worked on Monday so I could have Wednesday off. And we went Wednesday. Hannah, you know, is going to school in uh, Wyoming. And uh, she was on her way to the Creation Museum in Kentucky someplace. So she's passing by Southern Illinois. And so we figured, right, we could go down and spend the night in St. Louis. We spent the morning at the City Museum. You ever been to the City Museum? I'd encourage you. Anyone been to the museum in St. Louis? Okay, some of you, all right? Great place to go. Great place for kids. Great place for adults. Great place for every, everybody. It's really interesting. So we went there, and then we had an opportunity to meet up with Anna. Had a great celebration with her, kind of see a reunion. It was really good to see her. We haven't seen her in two months. We'll see her again in two months, and it was really, really good. But uh, since that time, I've come back home, and I've lost something. I've lost my... Um, my nice gray, what do you call it, wind, wind jacket, rain jacket thing. And I, I looked in the car for it, and I looked in my office, I looked downstairs, and, and I just couldn't find it. And uh, so I even, uh, SR's got some deal on some coats. He said, hey, you want to get one of these coats? I said, yeah, maybe. And so I got to replace this. This is my favorite jacket. Um, just because it, it works, it works so well. It's, I can put it's it's big enough. I can put several layers underneath it. Just stops the wind and the rain. And and we're even Yvonne and I were talking last night about um, that she's got Cole's cash and to get some of Cole's cash. And we're gonna like resolve that today is what we're gonna do. And and so I come this morning into the church and I come to my office this morning. And you know what? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> oh! <laughs> I, I found my jacket. I am so happy. I'm so glad that you're all rejoicing with me. And then I say that when I came in here, I said, look what I found. About. I'm so happy. So we can spend our, our Coles cash on, on something else. <laughs> Thanks for obeying the scriptures with me. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. In fact, this is the whole point of what, what Jesus says, is that, that God, when God blesses us, he wants others to join in with this. Because that's what God does. When God has lost people, come to him, he rejoices. In both the parables, listen to this, he says, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. He says, yes, I tell you, there'll be joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. The picture is this, is that... that that, that Jesus gives is the joy in God when he finds that which is lost. When those who are lost come and to be with him, God is happy and delighted and joyful. And he doesn't just set it there. He calls the angels. He calls all of heaven to come and share in God's joy when sinners repent. 
And so likewise, we ought to rejoice in that as well. And we see that in the last parable, the lost son. Jesus tells this parable about the son who asked, half his, asked for half of his inheritance. And then he goes away to a faraway country. And then he spends it all on loose and reckless living. And he's broke. And it's the end of himself. And finally, he realizes the end of his ways. And he returns home to the open arms of his father. And the father's so overjoyed, he calls a feast. Luke 15, he says, The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Maybe it looked like that jacket, I'm not sure. And bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. And all the servants rejoicing with the Father. It's a, it's a great picture of what happens in heaven when sinners repent. God, God has this feast called the Mary's Supper of the Lamb. And, and he prepares this in heaven. He's got this big party for his lost sons who've come back and are finally restored. And all heaven is there. And it, it speaks about the attitude of God. And, but if you know the parable, you know the story of the other son. Not everyone was rejoicing. There, there's one who who wasn't rejoicing with those who rejoice? It's the older son. And the servant noticed that, that the son was outside. They went to him and said, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older son was angry and refused to go in. And when his father saw it, he said, My son's not coming in. And so he went out to that son, and, and he said, Look, these many years I have served you and, and never disobeyed your command. The son is saying this to the father. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours comes home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And you know what this illustrates? It illustrates the difficulty in rejoicing with those who rejoice. Because we can envy them. We can be jealous of them. We can wish that it was us instead. That's why many people, many commentaries, as I read of this, pointed out how it's more difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep. The golden-mouthed preacher of the 4th century said, said it well. He said this. He said, There is none so hard-hearted as not to weep over him that is in calamity. But the other, that is rejoicing with those who rejoice, requires a very noble soul so it's not only to keep from envying, but even to feel pleasure with the person who is in esteem. And this is why the Apostle Paul placed it first. I'm not sure that's why Paul placed it first. But he's just saying that this is the harder of the two commands. That's why we're spending more of our time on it this morning. Is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because inwardly we're, we're jealous and envious. That, oh, I wish I had that blessing. It's more difficult of the two commands because it exposes the envy of our own souls. See, when things go well with others, it's easy to wish that it was our fate and not theirs, which makes genuine rejoicing difficult. But if we are going to have this sympathy, if we are going to have the same emotions, God calls us to rejoice in these times. And each of us have our own particular areas. We have difficulty with these things. Like for those involved in theater, it's... When your friend gets the best part, the part you wanted, like, it's hard, it's hard, huh, Steph? It's hard. Or for those in sports, it's difficult when your teammate gets the starting nod rather than you because you want the starting nod. So it's hard to rejoice. Or for those in the workforce, it's difficult to rejoice when your your co is chosen for a promotion rather than you. It's hard. Because you want to be the one with the promotion, but they get it. And so there's like envy, envy jealousy, envy. Maybe that's posing in there. There's jealousy there. There's, it's just difficult. For a single woman, a single woman in her 40s, it's Difficult to rejoice when your friend's newly engaged. She's going to be married. Everything you want, she has. It's hard. For barren women, it's difficult to rejoice with your friend who announces that they're expecting their fourth child. Like they come so easily, but 
to me it comes hard. Can I rejoice in that? Or for pastors, it's difficult. When other pastors tell of their churches booming and people being converted and baptized and our church is small and struggling. It's hard. There's an envy. There's an envy there. So I just ask you, what, what's your own personal difficulty? Just even if you, all your situations are all different, right? You're not barren. You're not a pastor. You're not a child. You're, you're someone, right? Someone different. What, can you just even think now and What's your particular difficulty in rejoicing with those who rejoice? Maybe there's someone you need to rejoice in what they have done, accomplished, that you're dealing with jealousy or envy. Just trying to make this personal. We'll do this in a small group tonight. Maybe you can just kind of share some of those things. It's a small group as we think about where it's hard to really genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice. And, by the way, if you pick this up in context, I think this might be the thrust of what Paul is saying. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What if it's the very ones who are persecuting you who are rejoicing? It's kind of hard to rejoice with those who rejoice when that's the case. They're being cruel to you and they're they're not facing the brunt of it. They're rejoicing. But that's what our text calls us to do. It, it tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice when things are going well with others. But here, here's, here's the good news. is that Every problem that we might have with jealousy or envy about someone else being blessed above us will all be gone in heaven. Won't be there. I, I love how Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. Okay, so just Jonathan Edwards. Okay, it's difficult. I'll, I'll try to read and describe. But he says this. In heaven... There shall be no remaining enmity or distaste or coldness or deadness of heart towards God and Christ. So enmity is gone. Coldness towards others is gone. Deadness or distaste. It says, not the least remainder of any principle of envy shall exist to be exercised toward angels or any other beings who are superior to us in glory. So we won't be envious of angels, even though they have a greater glory than we have. Nor shall there be anything like contempt or slighting of those who are inferiors. So we won't look up in envy to angels or we won't look down in, in whatever, despising contempt to those below us. Those who have the lower station in glory than others suffer no lessening of their own happiness by seeing others above them. In glory. Catch that? There, there's, there's no decrease in happiness when those below see those above who are greater in glory. He says, on the contrary, all the members of that blessed society rejoice in each other's happiness for the love of benevolence is perfect in them all. Everyone has not only a sincere, but a perfect goodwill to every other. In heaven, it's different than on earth. This, this whole thing you battle with rejoicing with those who rejoice, all gone. It's all gone. Because it will be perfect. And there will be no less joy or happiness because our happiness is in their happiness because we will truly be sympathetic with one another. We will share like emotions and passions with one another perfectly in heaven. Well, let's move on. We've seen rejoice. Let's move on now to weep. It simply says weep with those who weep. And I do think this one is easier. Um, because I quoted from Chrysostom earlier, right? There's no one so hard-hearted as not to weep over him that is in calamity. Right? You've got to be really hard-hearted if someone's in calamity and uh, they're weeping and you're not feeling for them at all. Even the most hard-hearted among us can weep with those who weep. And if for no other reason than this, is that we aren't in their condition. I mean, when someone loses money in some bad financial transaction, right? Or someone's business goes down and, and um, they experience bankruptcy. Or, or someone breaks a leg and is in 
pain or someone loses their dog or has some sort of fever or has a wayward child or, or gets fired or, or crashes a car. You go on and on and on. Whatever bad circumstances happen to someone where there's pain, difficulty, and triumph, you can always walk away. And you can always, in some regards, sinfully be thankful that wasn't you. There's a, a musical that uh, kids have been in sometimes called Susical. And one of the things about to have a happier day, Cat in the Hat says, things could be worse. So when you're having a bad day, just always realize that things can be worse. And so when someone has it bad, there isn't a way that you can even kind of look at that and say, well, I'm glad I'm not there. So in some regards, just even you can sympathize with them or you can say, wow, it's really bad, but I'm, I'm glad I'm not there. But you're missing the whole idea of weeping with those who weep. But in that sense, when you see them, you can feel some pain. You, you can get there. And you can feel it in a bit. But it is easy somewhat to weep with those who weep. A, a, a funeral is... It was a great place. I mean, I mentioned about our family's friend funeral yesterday. And during the service, Betsy's husband, John, who's a good friend of ours, he was giving a personal reflection about his life with his wife. And um, it's amazing he could do this, just, just thinking about his wife that just passed away. But he was, he, was, he was really wonderful in his message he gave. He's couched his message around one theme. He said, the Lord answers prayers. So he shared these prayers that he made and particularly towards Betsy, and, and how the prayers were answered in Betsy. And then after each of those, kind of, here's what I prayed for, and here's what Betsy was, and fulfilled all of my, my dreams. He said, he said, the Lord answered my prayers. And then Johnny, who was standing off to the side, said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And he had all of us say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that went on. And on us, maybe about 10 different times he said that. And, and just the things that he was sharing was so heart-gripping and so wrenching about a friend of ours whose wife has been just ripped away from him with cancer. And um, sometimes it was difficult for me even choking back whatever tears. I could not say, blessed be the name of the Lord sometimes. Just feeling for the guy. And feeling for my friend. And when others are grieving, it's not so much a stretch to grieve with them. Especially when they're crying, even physically. You see that. You just you, you feel that as well. Maybe you've experienced that as well. Maybe you've been to some funeral or been to some experience where someone is just sobbing and weeping and, and tearful. And you just you feel, you can feel so. You can be cold-hearted, for sure. But you can enter into that pretty well. And I think that's a great way even to help you obey Romans twelve fifteen. is that Whenever you see someone weeping or experience them or talk with them, just seek with all your heart and your might to get into their situation. So when someone loses a job, try to imagine what it would be like to lose your, a job yourself. When someone's facing financial difficulties, try to, try to place yourself in a situation. Okay, what would I do if I was facing similar financial difficulties? Or when someone's in great pain, you know, dying of cancer, it's not, it's not soft and gentle, it's hard. Just try to imagine what it would be like if I was experiencing that pain. And when someone's facing marital strife, try to imagine your own marriage facing difficulties. Or if someone's barren or, or cut from the football team or makes a foolish mistake and suffering consequence, to the extent that you can, to obey Romans twelve fifteen is to enter into their feelings with them as much as you can. They, you can't. But to the extent that you can, you will weep with those who weep because you'll feel their pain. Their emotions will be your emotions. And that's what sympathy means, right? Share your passions and share your feelings. And that ought to be what we are as a church. We are, we are one body and, and, and just, just physically, right? When your body, when your stomach, if you have a stomach ache, you, you kind of ache all over, right? If you headache, you feel bad. If you have a broken arm, you, you, you feel and and so when, when one of our members suffer, we all feel the pain. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six says it this way. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one suffers, we all suffer. But if one rejoices, we all rejoice together. 
as well. Well, the second way to, that weeping is easier than rejoicing is that all we need to do is show up. All you need to do is show up. Again, at the funeral yesterday, I, I've noticed many, many times, I, uh, people always say, just thanks for coming. You don't need to say a word. In fact, I would argue many times, not saying a word is better than saying words. Job's friends were far better when they were silent with him than when they began talking. There are times you just need to show up, just give a hug, listen. Because your presence ministers to people. Just your, your, your presence does it. And I know that every time I've gone to funerals and I go to my fair share of funerals, it's always the response, right? Just thanks for coming. I really appreciate your presence. If you want to be one who weeps with those who weep, go to every funeral that you can of people that you know. It's just a way to serve and minister to people, right? Toby, I know that's right. Just go. Toby's been to many funerals. With me, kind of, I show up church and there's Toby because she just says, so you figured this out somehow years ago. He's kind of figured out, <clears throat> I just need to go to funerals. I just want to be with people. I want to weep with those who weep. One thing you might, might also know is this, <clears throat> is that when you weep with those who weep, you don't need to fix the problem. Uh, I read a, a super encouraging um, article that Tim Challies wrote, entitled this, The Pastor's Job Isn't to Fix Things. And it's like, I sent it to Yvonne, this, whatever, two weeks ago or so, and I said, this is really helpful. Kind of figuring out what it means to be a pastor after all these years, right? Finally. <laughs> and then he writes this. I'm just going to read a good section of it. It says, Many people first begin to attend church when they're hoping to find a solution to a troubling circumstance. They, they want to have an easy and joyful marriage instead of a difficult and grievous one. They want to have polite and obedient children instead of troublesome and disobedient ones. They want to overcome an addiction or, or beat a bad habit. Low points like these often provide fertile ground for the gospel. And many people come to faith only after they've reached an end of their own strength, their own abilities. In this way, the church is the place they find meaning by finding Jesus Christ but they enter the Christian life bearing so much grief and pain. Likewise, many genuine believers first begin to attend new churches during troubled times. Perhaps conflict in a former congregation nudged them out, or perhaps great trauma was mishandled or overlooked, and their pain has led them to a place to heal. In this way, the church often serves a kind of refuge in times of trouble. And then, of course, the mature and committed members of a local church encounter difficulties of their own and go through challenging experiences. Their children grow up and reject the faith. Their friends turn on them. They experience the horror of abuse. Their spouses, those spouses, they were sure were going to come to faith, stop accompanying them to church, and their life is full of sorrows for the godly and ungodly alike. All these people and many more turn to their pastors. <clears throat> They turn to their pastors for guidance, for counsel, for wisdom. And as often as not, even if they don't state explicitly, the great hope is that their pastor will be able to fix things. They hope that he'll be able to provide the key that will make the pain go away, that will ease the sorrow, that will restore the separation. And for his part, the pastor really hopes to be able to do this. He places the expectation on himself. He gauges his success by his ability to deliver the solution. Yet the pastor's role is not to fix to minister. It's not to repair what's been broken, to restore what's been separated, to heal what's been wounded. Rather, the pastor's job and his great delight is to minister. To minister means to tend to or to provide. A father who cuddles his hurting daughter is a ministering comfort. A doctor who tends to a wound is ministering healing. <clears throat> and a pastor who carries out his calling well is ministering truth. His unique role is not to solve problems, but to minister the word of God to people under his care. He ministers the word because it has power, because it's communications from God. He ministers the word because it's pure and good and true. He ministers the word because it brings comfort, hope, and meaning, even when there's no fix in sight. Now, this doesn't mean that a pastor cannot offer practical counsel. It doesn't mean he can't be use his God-given wisdom to make suggestions or to take action. It doesn't mean that he can use the authority of his position to rebuke 
He, he can't use the authority of position to rebuke disobedient or call sinners to repentance. Yet through it all, he needs to remember that success is not measured in fixing the issue, but in ministering truth. His foremost task is to lead people to the word of God and to carefully pastorally minister to them the words they need to hear in their highest highs or in their lowest lows. Because the pastor's job is not to fix things. I found that tremendously comforting because I'm just a fixer. I want to fix everyone's problems, and I can't. And it's really dawned on me that I, that I can't. And my success should not be measured, can't be measured by how well I do that. But it can be measured how well the Word of God comes into your life and truth comes into your life. And so that's what a pastor is. But when you seek to weep with those who weep, you're, you're exercising a pastoral role, if you will shepherding role, a caring role, a, a providing for role, We're just doing whatever you can. And if you just realize this one thing, that, that it's not your job to fix the problem. Your job is to come alongside and cry and weep with them. It makes it a lot easier to weep with those who weep because you merely need to show up and be there and realize you just need to minister to them and care for them because the problems most often are, are way out of your control. Well, you can't bring Betsy back to life. It's done. It's gone. And John's got to deal with that. I can't solve that problem, but I can minister to John the Leesky family just by being there and speaking truth in her life and encouragement and praying for them. So I hope that makes it easier to weep with those who weep rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice because you just need to get down on their level, feel their emotion, and just be with them in their presence. So let's pray. Father, I would pray at Rock Valley Bible Church that this sort of attitude would be so true of us, oh God, that we would see this. People rejoicing with those who rejoice and people weeping with those who weep. Just life is filled with ups and downs and God, we'll need to do that. And we'll need to do that with other people. And I pray, God, that we would be willing to share that with others, that we would share our joys and that we would share our sorrows and our burdens so that others can come and weep alongside of us. God, I pray you'd help us to be open and vulnerable with one another. God, that we might genuinely be there to help, that we would have genuine sympathy. Oh, God, may Rock Valley Bible Church be a, a place where people show sympathy. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.